So I'm sat here with uh, David Jones, the esteemed and long-established uh, photographer. Uh, and with a name like that, do I take the assumption that you were actually born and brought up in Wales? Um, I, I, I lived in Wales until I was 11, or, um, but uh, I was actually born in Yorkshire. But my father came from Wales, hence the name, and uh, we, they moved from Yorkshire to Wales soon after I was born. And where in Wales were you? Carmarthen. Um, went to, I think it was Priory Street School. I can't remember much about it. <laughs> so it's quite rural no. Wales rather than the valleys or uh, Yes, yeah. And uh, at the age of 11, you moved to where? We moved to Oxford, where I went to school. And um, uh, I, was, I went to school till I, I left school at 16 and did a variety of jobs. Um, had quite a lot of experience. I learned a lot about Oxford, the town. I um, worked for a while as a window cleaner, cleaning the windows of one of the colleges. And uh, I worked in the steelworks and um, the Bodleian Library. Um, I worked underground at the Bodleian, which I loved. Very, a lot of very eccentric people working there. Um, and I, I did a foundation course at Oxford Polytechnic um, when I was 18. And is that where you discovered photography? Uh, well, we, we, yeah, we had a teacher who, funnily enough, I can't remember his name because it was only a three-day course, but he was... Uh, Later discovered he was the father of Yasmin Le Bon. <laughs> um, but he was a photography teacher who was quite inspiring. And he gave us Ronnie Flexes. I think we, we, I had to, we, we were split up into a, a team. We'd share a camera. I think he said we could go out and take... He suggested we take pictures at an exposure of two seconds at F11 on FP4. It was middle of winter which we did, and we got these quite interesting pictures. And I remember not wanting to leave the darkroom, um, and he, he let us stay through the lunch break. Normally they'd close. As a foundation course, it was run by a teacher called Len McCombe, who was quite strict about teaching skills of drawing and observation. And I think that was a very good um, training for taking pictures, actually. Just, you know, it was a very old-school Camberwell style of, uh, style of teaching. When we had to choose where to go, I had an open mind about what I did, but I was um, worried about getting a job. And I thought maybe I could do graphics or photography. He insisted I do fine art and, you know, said, just know that, you know, you've got to do fine art. You can't do anything else. Um, and I went along with this um, for his advice. I sort of remembered it. Um, but when, when you said fine art, we were talking about drawing and painting rather than um, photography. Yeah, well, fine art courses then you they were quite free. You could do you could do what you liked. I mean, you could do people were doing video and photography. He said you can do photography on a fine art course, which was true. So and anyway, I um, ended up because I got turned down by the first two colleges I applied for. Um, ended up at Winchester School of Art, where we were left to our own devices for three years, really. And just coming back to these Oxford pictures, the ones taken on with two seconds, it must have been quite blurry then. I mean, they were um, taken during daylight, even though it yeah, was winter. Yeah, well, it was raining. Uh, yeah, we went outside, and um, they were quite interesting. There was sort of... Uh, I remember there was a picture with car headlights that illuminated someone, and you could see images. They weren't completely blurred. That's quite radical for yeah. someone to be teaching photography in this style. Yeah, 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 it was. Um, and... And he, uh, in the space of three days, he taught how to develop a film. Take, you know, how you know, he gave us ideas about taking pictures. He was suggesting long exposures. I remember 
we used, did some pictures with sparklers. Um, I think one of us, we photographed each other with sparklers behind on a long exposure. We must have used a tripod for that. And um, I like the, the um, uh, twin lens reflex. Um, and immediately afterwards, I bought a Lubitool 2, which is this wonderful twin lens plastic camera that cost about five pounds at the time. And you could get remarkably good pictures with it. I mean, you're known as someone who photographs people in different social situations. When did the interest in actually photographing people start to brew up? Uh, when I was at art school doing fine art, um, I started to photograph quirky events in Hampshire. There were lots of summer fates, and um, I, we used to walk past the school every day. And, I, and the, also there was a, a house where the judges stayed, and there'd always be... Um, quite grand car parked outside in the mornings, police escort sometimes. And so I started photographing scenes that I saw in Winchester. No, no one really discussed, I mean, I just took the pictures, and, but I was also painting and doing collages. And um, it was only in my final year, I took a picture uh, on an art school trip in a gallery in Florence of some museum attendants looking at the painting that I started, well, the picture, I was very happy with the picture. I thought the picture worked in its own right, rather not just as kind of source material for paintings. And, oh, actually, just looking back, though, while I was at Winchester, I, I still used to come back to Oxford, because that was where my family home was. Also, there was a place, Parsons Pleasure, which I'd gone past on a punt, and I did attempt to photograph it from the other side of the river. You know, it's a new mainly may I think they were all men bathing place and that I wanted to because the way that it was their body language and the way they stood I took some pictures of that I was chased away by a naked man but I took took some pictures of that which I used in a collage they were they're probably the first sort of they're not exactly paparazzi but they were taken without permission but it was the first pictures that I did um like like that and thus started a whole career really of uh, your fascination with the rich and wealthy and what they get up to. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. And at that time, uh, so, so what dates are we talking about when you went to Winchester? Just to give us a, some context. Was, um, I think I left in, it was around 1977, 78, I was there. So it was mid-70s. And when you were at Winchester, did you see the photographs of other photographers and get excited uh, by seeing that? Tony Ray Jones, there was a book in the library. There were very few books. I persuaded the library to order interview magazine from New York which I used to like looking I used to like the portrait photography in there and um, I think there were only two or three books in the college library of only two or three books of photography one was Tony Ray Jones um, I hadn't seen much else, but that I was also influenced by magazine pictures I like Don McCullen's pictures of the tramps in uh, the East End oh and also I did hear I remembered recently I we went Travelled to Southampton to listen to David Hearn talk about photography. That must have been around 1977, and that was quite inspiring as well. So you went from this sort of mild fascination with these Oxford traditions like Parsons Green to, to actually photographing at social events and such like. When did the transformation come of you becoming a professional photographer? I was applying to colleges um, to do a photography course. I didn't get in anywhere and um, I decided I wanted to try and be a photographer. I 
applied for jobs and wasn't getting around. I was looking in the British Journal of Photography and this little ad for photographers at Butlin's holiday camp um, appeared and uh, I got a sort of military, slightly military looking small letter arrived back asking me to re- report uh, at in Minehead um, certain date, April the 2nd or something. Um, had no idea what I'd uh, need to do. <laughs> And uh, I was interested in going anyway, so I thought, well, I could take pictures there, and I didn't know whether I'd, you know, whether I'd be able to do it because I, I, I um, knew you had, you had to collect money from people, and which I didn't know how with the, how I'd managed doing that. But anyway, I reported for duty, and um, met the other photographers. Got given the chalet key, sharing a chalet, uh, and a uniform and a practica camera. And well, that's something we share because I too was a Butlin walkie. Yeah, uh, I did know. it for two yeah. years. First, oh, really? uh, as a black and white. Yeah. Uh, and then, second year, got promoted in oh. the commas, to, yeah. to being a colour walkie photographer. Oh, really? Yeah, they didn't have black and white. What year was that? This is 71, 72. Oh, yeah. And I was at Filey. Yeah. Rest in peace. Yeah. Minehead, uh, I think, is still going, isn't it? Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed it there. Did you, you, you must have liked it if you went back for the second year. Loved it. Because yeah. it did, All your one meals of the things included. it did, and I'm sure you would agree with this, it, it really gives you this opportunity to, to sort of flourish and to grow your, the idea of talking to people and what they want. Oh, yeah. yeah. Your social skills uh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, benefited hugely, yeah. I imagine, from Butlins. I assume yeah. you found the same. Yeah, yeah, no, I did. Yeah, I was looking, uh, actually, because I was looking at my Butlins pictures again, because I've got a, an album of some of the, you know, the ones, the number pictures? Um, that would start the role of you'd start the role of film with a number, and that was a free picture. And I, I um, at that time, a lot of uh, the photography we were mainly doing filling flash in the daylight, which reminded me of your pictures later on. And did that influence your photography? You know, the, the style that you started at Butlins did that influence you later on? Do you think? Uh, not really, because we didn't use so much flash. We used it um, in the dining halls and at uh-huh. night. Because the yeah. advantage of being a colour walkie. Is you could go around to the beachcomber bar. Yeah, I think they have one at Winehead too. Because they had them everywhere. Yeah, they had the every same half everywhere. Hour of the thunderstorm, and the black oh. and white walkies weren't allowed in. So oh. That was the domain that was the exclusive uh, area where the colour walkies would get together. And yeah. the thing that sold the pictures was heads together. I'll yeah. never forget that. Oh. You know, if you want to oh. sell a picture, oh. and the idea was yeah. you take these pictures and then um, they'd be up the following day and people would order them. Yeah, heads together was always a big seller. Oh, really? I, 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 so, were you collecting money as you did them, or were you? No. Um, oh, so you would like? Uh, yeah, because there was a guy, a wandering guy, that did that that job. But there were six of us that we had to collect the money. Well, we did and it do the, the pictures hall, on commission. These mini viewers. Yeah, in the I mean, then you come back and sell black those. And white pictures on Tuesday. Thursday yeah. was the color half frame mini viewers. Oh. And the great selling point for that was uh, you leave them on the table. And they say, oh, I don't know if I really want it. It says, what happens if we don't take it? Oh, we just put them in a bin. Oh, yeah. And that yeah. was the thing that really sold the pictures because yeah. they couldn't stand this notion that their image was going to be thrown away. Yeah. Now, I had, we had a sort of row at my camp because some people changed their minds after I'd, they'd gone, you know, and they had to search through everything because they got hysterical. <laughs> What, because you, you had the pictures? Be- um, because the pictures existed, but they they first of all said no, so I I swept them into I think I was the photographer that happened to deal with them, because they, when I got back to the shop, 
they said uh, they'd already piled everything into it. They used to recycle them all. And um, they'd had them in the shop complaining already. They, they basically changed their minds after returning them. So how did you transform from being a butlin's walkie to a, a Tatler photographer, which you started in the early 80s? Well, um, I, I finished at Butlins and um, I'd saved up quite a lot of money because I wasn't spending much because all your food was included. And I bought some camera equipment. So I, I didn't really have a professional camera at the time. Um, I just had one of the Russian, cheap Russian ones. And um, I set up some art, art school friends were setting up a, a complex in Oxford. And I took a studio with a plan to do portraits. Um, and at the same time, I entered a photography competition that the Sunday Times were running um, for young photographers with my Butlins pictures I'd taken while I was there. And the prize from the competition was you got to work for the Sunday Times. Um, so there was, you know, great excitement in the young amongst photographers. And I think a thousand entered or something. A short list was made of 25. And we were given a list of subjects to photograph, all of which were subjects the Sunday Times was interested in already. And one of the subjects was the return of the bright young things, um, which was quite vague. It wasn't necessarily the bright young things in Oxford, or but Oxford did. When I kind of researched it, Oxford was was one of the um, place that was really where it was happening. There was this kind of mood change going on, and um, uh, it was quite cutthroat. There were twenty five photographers, and about eight of us decided to photograph this subject. So f photographers were turning up at Oxford looking around for parties or trying to get into things and uh, uh, I think two of the photographers had cars which I thought gave them an advantage in a way because they could get around more easily but they also but they no, no one else lived in Oxford so I had um, so I was there on the spot and I began I decided I didn't really believe in the bright young things but there was this sort of phenomenon of dining clubs starting students dressing up um, and making their own uh, exclusive groups. There were the Assassins and the um, Piers Gaveston Club, the Keats Society, lots, of, and there were women's ones as well. Uh, the George Club was a girl, was a women's club. Um, and they were mainly, they were all mostly from private schools, but I decided, I realised there were the groups of students that were excluded from some social groups were making their own exclusive groups and you were getting slightly so I I found that when I went to one club that went to Soho on a sort of um, uh, crawl of strip clubs they weren't actually as posh they weren't really as upmarket as some of the other groups and I, I w was finding my way around while I was taking pictures for the competition which this was all in the period of about six weeks I, I entered seven prints I think and because we weren't being um, paid to do them, I, I thought in the way the Sunday Times had a bit of a cheek, they, they sort of expected the pictures to be done in colour, but they, uh, they weren't insistent on it. So I, did my, I bought, had bought a boat roll of black and white film and did them on black and white because I preferred black and white and I thought, well, at least I'll, I'll, like, I'll be happy with the pictures myself afterwards. And um, when I entered them... I uh, didn't win. I was, uh, I, w I was a runner-up, but pictures caused uh, a lot of interest and led. What I, I heard afterwards, um, when Tina Brown heard about the pictures that had been entered, because she heard through a, 
Her, par- her husband or partner at the time, Harry Evans, she'd heard about the pictures of Oxford, the bright young things. She was interested in it, in the subject anyway, and she was because she was the editor of the Tatler, which was covering this world. She, um, when she called up the Sunday Times to find the name of the photographer that had won, picture editor there was uh, James Danziger, who's now a photography has a photography gallery, big dealer in um, New York. But at the time, he was a young 24-year-old picture editor or something, maybe 24, maybe a bit older. He said, well, actually, the guy you want to see is uh, the runner-up. And he, so he put a good word in for me, and um, she called me and gave me some freelance jobs. And that's what led gradually. I mean, the, the magazine needed a photographer. They were looking for someone, and uh, they were already paying freelancers and weren't very happy with the results, and each time it was a different photographer, or they'd, uh, sometimes if the photographer got something good, they'd immediately go out and sell it to the Daily Mirror or something. And so she wanted someone she could trust, but she had a very low budget, so she, um, I think she paid me something like £500 a month, um, which was... a retainer? Yeah, as a retainer, which, this was in 1981, which included everything, uh, included expenses, and I found if I was very, and I was excited to be doing this job, and uh, also the owner of the magazine, it was quite a tin pot kind of setup. It wasn't owned by Condonast then. He uh, also said, well, hang on, if you hire this photographer for this massive amount of money, you uh, should also get him to work for this other magazine I own, um, and include throw that in. So uh, they had me rushing around all over the place, which was, uh, and also there uh, was the proviso I moved to London, all included in this. Um, after a while, I realised that actually I was losing, I was spending more than, you know, I mean, even though I was printing my own pictures, the cost of film and travelling around, I was pra- practically losing money. Um, but, um, Gradually, the pictures were being noticed more. The magazine began um, sort of expanding the section I was doing, and Tina got, was pleased, so she gave me a, a rise. And um, I was getting other jobs because I was doing these already. And um, so gradually, it, um, thing, uh, it took a while, about three or four years, I um, began to uh, make my living from this. And were you able to keep your own copyright during that time? Uh, originally, I uh, Tina was very vague, and so I had a very vague uh, arrangement, but it clarified over the years to something much more clear. But yeah, I do have the copyright for everything. Um, it was a sort of ongoing negotiation, which finally got sorted out when Mark Boxer was editor. And um, he took a kind of particular interest in it, and he was very helpful. But I know it was unusual because most photographers... It's what happened, the magazine got bought by Condé Nast. For a while, they, Tina always said uh, I could make money from sales. Uh, she just wanted first use. Um, but there was nothing in writing. But it, it gradually clarified. And I assume by this time you were photographing social events in London uh, over and above the Oxford traditional... Oh, yeah. By this time I was, in, I was sort of travelling. This was only in the space of a year. But I continued... I, I didn't think I'd completed the pictures I did in Oxford. And I because I'd got to know Oxford very well, I would go back. Um, and I had really a free, a, a lot of free reign. I mean, originally, 
there was a very small staff on the Tatler, and they, I was left to my own... Oh, the people, lots of people in the office would suggest things they, that I should photograph. Or they, but also their access was bad, so they, uh, it, 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 was, it began improving over the years. But originally, for instance, I remember Tina was interested in a big ball that was going on in Kent, but they couldn't get into. And they asked me if I would mind going and standing outside or seeing what I could get. And so I did. I went and actually I was looking back at the pictures because I, uh, I was just standing in a country lane photographing cars going in and out of a, a country estate. But they're quite. In, I stayed till four in the morning, five in the morning, till dawn. I stayed till dawn. And actually the pictures, um, there's one picture in particular where there's sort of raindrops on this car. And um, people didn't seem, uh, I was, it was quite an eccentric thing to do really. I was just sort of there in my in my raincoat, um, in the middle of nowhere. And one of the guests leaving stopped his car and said, do you need a lift anywhere? <laughs> and because uh, I was stranded, there were no, uh, and he drove me to the nearest station or something and chatted Mark, he, I, I mean, I still know, remember him. Because I got to know him then, Mark Cecil, he was called. Um, but he was, uh, I'd often see him at parties after that. But as the pictures began being noticed and the magazine became more successful, I was invited to more parties, and um, and I just carried on. Uh, but at the same time, I was worried I should be doing something more serious because I wanted to be a photographer, and thought, you know, I'm just photographing parties. And I, but I remember seeing phoning up picture editors on newspapers, you know, going in to see them. I remember seeing Bryn Campbell, and he said, you know, you should just carry on doing what you're doing. You've got this wonderful seam, and just you know, forget about working for, I think he was the Telegraph or the Observer at the time. Forget about working for us, just, you know, keep keep it up. And so that encouraged me as uh, as well. I mean, I was slightly discouraged because I wanted to work for a kind of proper... Because at the time, the, t- the Tatler was a, a very tin-pot publication, really. But it was a nice little niche with, with no one else really trying to do what I was doing. And you'd assume that uh, having, uh, dropping the name Tatler would help you get into events and, and you'd be welcome, but you're saying that wasn't necessarily the case. No, uh, no, no, it wasn't. I remember uh, one time there was a girl, Gabby Doppel, that would, this was before the Tatler had kind of expanded and there was a secretary for the party section. She was the editor's secretary and I remember she wrote, they, they knew about seven big balls going on one weekend in the summer, and they wrote to all seven these, uh, you, you know, letters asking permission to photograph their parties, and one replied, say yes, <laughs> out of seven. And so that was the one I was I went to. And, and that was the case all the way through, actually, in Oxford. Just going back to when I was doing the Sunday Times pictures, there were quite a lot of clubs that, um, you know, a lot of people that said no. There was and there was places like the Gridiron Club. Did you come across that uh, when you were in? Uh, well, there was a private members' club for students in Oxford yeah. called the Grid, and they'd have lunch there. And it was a sort of Bertie Wooster sort of place. And I was amazed. I'd lived in Oxford, you know, uh, been to school there. There was this this place existed in the middle of town, and I went there and met these two uh, guys. So I was told were the ones to speak to, sitting on leather chairs, and they. They were very polite, but said they'd rather not be photographed or rather not have any pictures of the club. And then I tracked down the Bullingdon Club. I heard about the Bullingdon Club. And the was 
I think Philip Astor was kind of running things at the club then. I went to see him. He had rooms in Christchurch, very, very grand rooms. And um, uh, I went to see him, and it was the same guy that had been at the Gridiron Club. <laughs> so same answer again. Uh, so actually there was a whole section maybe of things in Oxford I didn't photograph. Because you surprised me in the sense that, uh, you know, having recently photographed myself at Oxford and getting permission was very, very difficult. Yeah. I always assumed 20, 30 years ago it was much easier, but you're saying that's not necessarily the case. No, 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 it was difficult. All that, um, it was difficult then, yeah. And um, because I'd lived in Oxford and I admired the architecture and I'd sort of been in and out of the colleges, I'd had friends at, at some of the universities and I'd shared houses with um, students shared flats and I used to clean a student house actually while I was taking the pictures um used to clean the kitchen so I I'd sort of knew a lot of people at university and I felt a sort of oh and the other thing is I'd during a period of sort of semi-employment in Oxford I'd um contributed to Charwell the student newspaper and ISIS although I wasn't a student at the university mm-hmm. so I I'd sort of knew my way around and so I used to go in and out of the... I felt I almost not had a right, but I felt I, I used to confidently walk around everywhere and post messages. So something like the burning boat, I think I heard that was going on the first time I photographed it. I heard it was going on and just went there and got in, walked into the college and they were setting fire to a boat, you know. <laughs> then when I photographed it in 1984, a few years later, I went back and I knew... I knew it would be happening because it happened every year at the end of eighth week. But I knew it would um, be difficult. There was no point asking permission. And I just sort of went into Oriel College about an hour before they'd be finishing the dinner. And just kind of, I was hanging around, smuggled my, just walked through the doors. Before they closed, they closed the doors to the college. I remember the funny thing is, I was, you know, I started chatting to someone and he was another photographer who'd done the same thing. American photographer working for the National Geographic. Uh, so that was how I did. But then when I photographed the burning boat in Cambridge, I got permission. I mean, it varied each time, some of the colleges, but sometimes I wouldn't ask in case the answer was no. And in the case of the Bullingdon Club, I, um, I worked out because they, I mean, they didn't want to be photographed, but I knew, but they would go to other social events wearing their distinctive coats so if I ever saw them, I'd photograph them, and then I discovered there was a point-to-point they normally went to after their breakfast um, that happened every year. So there were these ways of photographing parts of Oxford that if you knew where to go, you could... Um, and then some people I got to know gradually, like the Dangerous Sports Club, I think, originally didn't want to be photographed, and then began inviting me to things. Now, at the same time, in the 80s, there was this parallel world going on of, sort of art photography, documentary photography, the photographic galleries that got established. Did you think about trying to get exhibitions or work into these places um, and to meet the people that ran the uh, establishments? Y- yeah, I, I um, d- did show... I used to... Um, I showed my work to Sue Davis, uh, the photographer's gallery. I didn't, didn't get much response um, at the time. Um, and... At the end of the eighties, I I thought I had a I had a set of pictures that was was ready to be shown. I showed it to the Bradford as well, but I, yeah, I didn't get anywhere. But by the time I moved to New York, I got an exhibition very quickly in New York of some of the Oxford pictures, actually some of the English ones mixed up with ones taken from 
from uh, Tegan in America. So my first show was in New York. And do you think this rejection by the British establishment, uh, uh, photography establishment, was because they would see you as a sort of commercial social pages photographer? Uh, th- I, I think that was partly it. Yeah, yeah funny enough, that's, uh, that happened. Um, one time I was off in an exhibition that was withdrawn when they realised who I was, you know, that I was a, uh, a jobbing photographer that they, they knew anyway, you know. But yes, I, I think there was um, also, when people saw the pictures, there were two reactions. One was, why aren't the pictures being more critical? And the other one was, I can't stand these people. I can't even bear to look at them, you know. And I had... Uh, Chris um, Beatles, is it Chris Beatles? Uh, he reacted quite badly when he saw them. He just said they're very good photographs, but I hate them, you know. That's <laughs> from that background, probably. Yeah, probably, yeah. So, interestingly, you moved to America, I believe, in the late 80s. Yeah. And you were working then for Vanity Fair. Yeah. Were you headhunted by them? Um, not, not exactly. Well, Tina Brown, who'd been editing the Tatler, moved to New York and... What happened was, yeah, well, I, I, uh, she had a frustrating period where she wanted some of my pictures for a story in America for, that she was running about England. And my editor in England, Mark Boxer, wouldn't let her have them. And I went along, I agreed with his decision. And um, at the time, this was about 1987, she said, well, you know, she sort of offered me a job, which I didn't accept I was happy in England but then Mark Boxer sadly died I mean very tragically and the magazine slightly I I got a feeling that they they started talking about running pictures of people smiling um or you know basically they wanted pictures all the time of parties of people smiling and um I, I I was getting these warning signals and um I uh so I took I went back to America and saw Tina again and she um I started, she first of all had me over for a month taking pictures, which I enjoyed a lot because they put me in a hotel and um, uh, it was a new world to photograph. Was it very different photographing the States to the UK? Uh, Yes, the people were older on the whole um, and there were lots of photographers and the magazine expected more pictures. One of the things that was happening was um, that I'd go to a party and there'd be photographers photographing madly, really just, Snap, 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 like this. And I I um, dis- discovered that they were doing this to um, save on dupes. Um, <laughs> they were taking kind of transparencies and rather than getting the dupes made afterwards, they were just snapping crazily. And actually, I, but I, I, I do remember being sort of told off, why didn't I take more pictures? Um, it was sort of kind of work, American work ethic. They were giving me far too many things to go to, five parties or something in an evening. I and mean, you're spending all your time getting from one to the other. Also, expected. Yeah, I remember actually being shown contact sprint contact sheets by another photographer, and he seemed to have snapped someone to death. Really, you know, there were like three rolls of film of the same person. Um, but uh, I mean, on the whole, that that was a rare thing. Um, but there was this sort of American work ethic at, at the magazine. But the parties themselves were. Um, different as well. There were different worlds in New York. I, I think. In, it was harder in America because I, I've talked about this before, but there was Washington, the politics, and Los Angeles, all the actors, and um, the, you know the sort of celebrities, and then New York had the ladies who lunch, social X-rays, uh, and also then the downtown scene, like hardcore Bohemians, 
which the magazine didn't want at the time, which I think was a mistake. I should have been photo- I should have been photographing. I mean, in a way, looking back, I was photographing the wrong things, because they, oh, that, and then the other thing they were, they put far more resources into it, not not necessarily, with more success. Um, I had an editor, who went with me to parties and would point people out, and um, he felt it, it was his job, to basically stand by my side, which I find found very irritating. And long discussions about this, trying to shake him off, you know. Um, and uh, but he was very nice, introducing me, ex- telling me, explaining things, and introducing me to lots of people, and uh, a world I didn't know much about. But uh, I'd have preferred to being left to my own devices. Were you able to keep uh, shooting in black and white, or had you by yeah. that time had to change the color? No, I was shooting black and white still. And Tina and Co. Obviously, thought that was fine. Yeah, yeah. Every now and then they'd ask for color, and um, I had mixed feelings about America. And I, I had a crazy period where I I left Vanity Fair, came back to England, and then went back again to America. This time to work for a newspaper, uh, the New York Observer, and it was a, again I'd had this worry uh, where I'd never felt entirely. I mean, it, obviously, it can be quite bad for you just going to parties all the time. And I'd got to know Graydon Carter, who at the time was editing a newspaper, and I thought, which I thought was very good. It was a weekly newspaper. And I persuaded him to give me a job for very little money, working for the New York Observer. And so I moved myself and family all back again. Um, but then, um, within a month of his arriving, he left <laughs> to go and work for Vanity Fair. And, um, uh, but I stayed at the newspaper for a year. But then... Uh, the new I wasn't getting on with the new editor, and um, I went to Vanity Fair again for a second time. So he but, he basically brought you back over to work with him. Uh, well, I I I wasn't I, I didn't have the sort of luxury. The first move I was kind of moved over, but the second move I did on I did myself really. Um, but the whole the other thing that's influenced me is I, I like, uh, I was, my, my wife and I were, we, we, I got interested in brownstones and we fixed up a house while we were there. We bought a, we sold a, our place in London and bought a brownstone for, that was in a very dilapidated, uh, it had no roof, and um, we fixed that up while we were in New York the second time. That probably earned you more money than the shooting. It did, yeah, it did. <laughs> How old did you stay in America before you came back to the UK? Uh, not long. Um, I wish I'd stayed longer, really, uh, two years. Uh, two, two or three, three years. So we came back in 96, 95 maybe. And when you came back, were you then just freelancing or did you have a particular association with magazines or a container? Um, I was freelancing what, uh, and it was a bit like the move there where, where um, everything goes, sort of goes. I mean, when I went to America the second time, the news, you know, Greg Carter, the editor I wanted to work for, left the newspaper soon after. I, well, uh, when I was, we decided to come back. Our children were at a sort of critical age, around the age of 11, 11 and 9. And um, I came back on a sort of a looking around for a work trip before we actually moved back. And the Telegraph offered me a job, uh, a, a weekly column. And um, so then we gave up the school places, uh, but then the Telegraph changed their mind. Um, but we'd already decided to move back to England by that point, so then we carried on and moved back anyway. So I had no job, but then I got a mixture of different freelance things. 
And by this time, had you started a, a licensing business yourself where you would literally sell the pictures to defenders? Because um, your, your yeah. accumulated archive must have been pretty good in terms of having um, many, many famous people included. Yes, I, I'd been doing that sort of carefully. From I'd been doing it from the mid-80s, really, but it, it, it didn't really... Um, it was a small part of what I was doing. It grew as as I as um, everything became digitized. I was quite early on scanning pictures, and it was around that time, ninety six, when I started. I bought a computer and a scanner, and um, decided originally. I decided I wasn't going to have a darkroom. I would just do everything digitally. But I was taking film, but then scanning the pictures. Is that because the digital technology wasn't up to speed? Um, they at that time, the, the digital cameras weren't good enough. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And in the late 90s, you started using the panorama. So what initiated that move? Um, it was experimenting with, with the computer, really, and I was trying out different softwares. I'd been introduced to the software when I was in New York, uh, and I'd been looking at it anyway, and I was just playing around with it. I was making quick-time movies, and I showed some of them to Grant Scott, the um, art, who at the time was the art director on the Tatler, and he said, can't you print these out flat? And uh, so I did. Print, I, I, there's a source file for the QuickTime movie. And he then actually got a um, uh, someone that sponsored one of their, the Tatler magazine supplements to pay for me to do. Cause doing the panoramas was always a huge effort, a lot of work involved in putting them together. But they were quite close to the paintings. Um, I'd been doing at art school in the 70s, actually, in a, in a way. Anyway, so I did a, a series of panoramas of the social season for um, the supplement in the, that was part of the Tatler, and that was the beginning, really. Um, and then when I started showing them to people, I got more more people interested. The ES magazine in London began, um, first of all, I, I showed them to the art director there, and she... Um, commissioned me to do a restaurant every week but r rather than doing an empty you know I would go into the restaurant at the busiest time of the week and um, quickly do a panorama they were all overlapping pictures that I stitched together and then I realized that this was a way of photographing events that PRs were trying to control because I was actually wanted to photograph the whole scene the, the bodyguards and the PRs rusting around and all the branding on the walls and um, the, the general melee at um, controlled media events, I realised it was a way of photographing them where you could get an interesting picture. And so then I thought, oh, God, why did I leave America? I should be back there. Um, I showed them to Tina again, who was setting up Talk Magazine, and she gave me a contract to do panoramas for Talk Magazine, which lasted uh, two years. But um, the panoramas were... I'd never thought she ran enough of them, really. ES Magazine, I got quite excited. At one t uh, the height of ES Magazine running the restaurant panoramas, they ran one over three pages, which I was just very excited about, a picture that you could keep turning the page in the same picture. And then I was showing them to other magazines, can't you do this? <laughs> can't you run a picture over three pages? You know, They started running them smaller, and around the same time I persuaded the Telegraph, uh, I had a fantastic run of panoramas for the Telegraph, um, doing one every week for four or five years, and I didn't dare have a week off in case they put, started putting something else in, you know. So moving forward now and thinking about the last, say, 10, 15 years when the magazine market has really gone into decline, 
Yeah. How have you been able to survive that sort of massive transformation in, in the photography business? Um, well, it's been difficult. Uh, I, I've had a, a big decline because I, I, my sort of working method, my business method really has been to persuade magazines and newspapers to pay me to do what I want to do. And um, uh, they haven't had, to, you know, they've cut back on that. Um, they, I think they were, sometimes they, uh, the party page part of magazines was something the editors didn't really like particularly, but they, they didn't care about that much, but they were happy to have some, someone do it. it. It might sell ads or something, but then as they, their advertising revenue's gone down, they just haven't had the resources, so I, I lost a lot of different jobs. And then, um, and magazines have got more cautious, so they haven't want, wanted to run pictures that, you know, they've gone for the cheapest agency pictures on the whole. Um, although I still, every now and then, have had a sort of scoop, which is kept me going for a while but um no the um over the last few years i've started so i had more time um i had a magazine that folded at short notice that i was working for and that was when i began going back and looking at my old pictures again and re-editing them and uh printing out i, I printed a box of prints um my first box which you have already exhibition in a box where i was looking back of my early the early part of my career, just printing up, partly for fun, just for the pleasure of printing the pictures, but also because they were, I wanted to sort of somehow guide people that looked at my work into different edits of my pictures. Yes, because what you have accumulated is a remarkable archive of British social life from the 80s onwards, really, because mm -hmm. whenever I go to London and I'm at a party or the occasional time when I've had a commission like, doing some work for the Tatler about the season, you're always there. Yep. And you yep. know Thanks. everybody. You walk into a room, or someone walks into a room, and you know who they are. Most of these people, I don't know who they are from Adam. Yeah. So your experience and accumulated knowledge in that is almost second to none. Oh, thanks. And, and when I see you at these places, I assume, are you just going because you want to go, because you've got the connections, and you may or may not get a picture? You're not accepting or going because you've been commissioned. You're just going because that urge for you to still go to yet another party, is still there? Um, I don't go to, as, I'm not sort of profligate in what I go to. You, you're, you and I are probably going to the same ones because you, you're going because you're interested and I'm the same thing. Certain things I get invited to every year uh, and I go because I like photographing them, but I, I, I don't go to everything that's happening. Um, some of the sort of social worlds are dying out and I'm quite interested in that and some are changing. And I, I, well, I do find it, the whole sort of social scene in London with um, oligarchs and different groups of people um, sort of appearing and then not, not wanting, actually sometimes not wanting to be photographed has, has fascinated me as well. And, um, but uh, uh, I mean, the art world, I was very excited about the art world because I, I was interested in the art for quite a long time. And then it, I, I, I thought if there was a, a really good exhibition, Usually the party is good as well, and and if I like the exhibition, I, I like to photograph the party too. And with the introduction of the smartphone, has that sort of changed the way you photograph these events? First off, people using the smartphone, of course. Yeah. And secondly, because everyone's taking pictures left, right, and centre, what sort of effect has that had on your career? Um. Uh. I. I yeah. I suppose it's it's changed the um the kind of everyday everyday working social photographers. 
it's um, it's affected them badly, probably because they're no longer needed. Um, uh, so you you don't get those sort of probably. I think most social photographers are getting less work. Um, I'm still getting, um, but the, it was the magazines I like working for um, rather than the. the I mean, the, the sort of money is in private jobs, which um, private commissions. I, I still get some of those and um but it hasn't really affected the way i i work and uh, first of all when smartphones were appearing i i i just i i got very excited whenever i saw someone using a smartphone at a party i was photographing because i like the light it lights up their faces and um it also just you get all sorts of funny moments where people are at this um exciting party but all they're doing is fiddling around with their phones you know um but i, I wonder where it's going to go i think there's going to be a move against it it's going to be a sort of I mean, um, it's going to be something, a kind of social no-no to be looking at your phone at a party. And then 20, 30 years later, you know, you, you have now, if you like, uh, started thinking more about the art world. You've made your boxes. Uh, you, you know, you're making prints, very nice prints that you've done yourself. Have you had any more positive response from the uh, photography art market in this revival of work that you've um, initiated? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, I think I have. I mean, it's gradual. Um, I, I've been selling more prints. I mean, um, my income has changed. It was almost, it was sort of um, almost a hundred percent editorial. Whereas now the print sales and box sales of boxes have, have increased quite a lot, and um, uh, that's also it's encouraging. But also, it, it's enabled me to carry on working. And if I, there's something I want to do, I can finance it. Uh, and the one big thing that's missing in your career is guess what. Uh, no, I don't know. Book. Oh, oh, yeah. Where good is question. it? What's uh, happened? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's a good question. I yeah, I've had all that a sort of series of disasters. Really, I've sort of turned down Thames and Hudson in about nineteen ninety, I think, and they actually offered uh, an advance because um, so I went for someone that was more charismatic than uh, at the time. I, don't, I hope I'm not being rude about um, Thames and Hudson, but the, um, and then he changed his mind or lost interest. Um, and series of disasters, but I am hoping to do a book. In a way, though, because I, I'm still going through the pictures, I'm glad I didn't do one back in... I was ready to do one in 1990. I, I, I'm glad I didn't do it because it's given me more time to think about the work, and um, I've been surprised. The box of sleepers I did, James Hyman uh, was looking at the box, um, and he, the, the collector and gallery gallerist James Hyman um, and he said why is it 19 pictures can't you make it 20 it's a nice round number and I looked through my files again and found one I just never noticed before which is now one of my favorite pictures in that collection um, and that made me realize god I'm you know there's pictures I've never never looked at in hidden away in the contact sheets and that's those pictures I was showing you of the burning boat that's why I looked at those again so I'm still I'm still finding pictures. And taking them. Yeah, yeah, and still taking them. If yeah. you were to do a book, would you want to show the whole span of your career coming into the colour panoramics and the more recent work, or would you want to stick to the sort of um, now well-established and uh, yeah. very um, strong pictures from the 80s and so um, I, I, I think they're, um, they're separate books. Um, the panoramas is, is a separate book to the black and white early ones. And that might be I, I I still haven't really approached looking at the American pictures properly. So I'm thinking of doing an American box and and trying to promote it in America. 
but I haven't really got to that yet. I'm still looking through the early 80s pictures. And I, I recently went back looking at the Butlins pictures and was surprised what I've found there. They're still um, not bad, the ones from Butlins. And when you go to a party these days, I mean, do you really think you're going to get something different? Because you've been to so many, you've seen so many things. In, in one sense, you might say, well, you know, you've exhausted that subject. There's nothing more to do. Um, I've wondered about that. And it's one reason, actually, why I wasn't... I, I mean, I, I didn't really want to leave London, but um, uh, one reason why I uh, moved was I thought, well, it'll make me do something else, just photographs, you know... So I won't just because when I was in London all the time, when I was, um, I would just, if I was invited to a party, I'd go to it, and if it was two or three in one evening, I'd try to, you know, if one wasn't, you know, and I thought, well, it's quite good to try and get away from that a bit, and um, so I'm, I'm looking for something else, but, um, but you never know what I, I photographed an amazing party last summer that went on, you know, into the next day and. Uh, it was the lands English landscape and dawn, and um, kind of eccentric things that happen. Um, and actually, at parties, are big moments in people's lives. You know, people have sort of big rows, or they they suddenly get very depressed and have black moods at parties. Um, one time, I was at a party in London where someone pulled a gun. A girl produced a gun, which I was ready to photograph and didn't. Because I realised then, I, hang on, you know, I, I didn't do anything, I just froze. And someone took the gun from her. But you, you can never really tell what's going to happen, which is one of the reasons why they're great subjects. I mean, I think they are, but they're also very difficult. I mean, they're a hard slog, photographing parties. Do you know when you've arrived and you've got a, an absolutely brilliant party on your hands? Do you know immediately? Um, usually, yeah, yeah. And looking back at your career, can you just name a couple that have been extraordinary, apart from that one last summer? Well, there was a Piers Gaveston ball in uh, the Park Lane Hotel where I took about 20 rolls of film, which was very unusual for me. Was um, And I thought that would make a nice box of prints, <laughs> just a party. It was a fancy dress party and um, quite a couple of hundred people. Um, um, but um, no, sometimes it's surprising when you look at the contacts, uh, Sometimes I might find three decent shots on one film, which is very unusual because you might go through loads and loads of contact sheets where there's nothing, and suddenly you get three in one, you know, in one go. I suppose the parties I like the most are the ones where they're partly outside, just because I don't like photographing inside all the time. Um, and so those May balls with just beautiful light early in the morning. But um, only in Cambridge, because Oxford balls have to stop at two. These oh, days. really? Too? Oh, yeah. well, I'm very behind the times. Yeah, so, uh, I'd say Cambridge balls yeah. definitely have the edge. I went to one uh, Worcester College uh, a couple of years ago. I mean, it wasn't, um, it was maybe three, four years ago, which did go on, you know, till dawn, but they had to wear headphones uh, because of the sound restrictions. But that was very surreal because, um, you know, they're all wearing headphones dancing. Yeah, I didn't know that about Oxford. That's quite um, disappointing. Perhaps they can get away with it if there's no sound. Yeah, but that's yeah, no sound is away. Oh. Anyway, David, it's been great to talk to you, and um, I'm sure the next party I go to, I'll oh, say hello and see yeah. how you're getting on. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks. Yeah, good to speak to you too. Thanks.